All right, if you have your Bibles, if you turn in them to Galatians chapter 5, uh, Galatians chapter 5, and uh, this morning we're going to, and I'm, by the way, I'm Donnie Mathis, I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Fellowship uh, as well, and we're going to begin reading in chapter 5, uh, verse 26. So today as we near the conclusion of our examination of the fruit of the Spirit, we reach the fruit of gentleness, and I want us to consider that fruit of the Spirit under the sort of the umbrella of this idea that gentleness is not a four-letter word. Now, obviously, it has like ten letters, but why is it that gentleness is so uh, lowly esteemed in our present day and time? Now, in his letters, Paul uses the term translated as gentleness on around eight occasions, and it becomes clear that possessing gentleness is essential for growth in the Christian life, for unity in the church, and even for declaring the truth to those outside of the church, those who've either departed from the gospel or uh, never believed. Oddly, though, and hopefully by the time we get to the end of the sermon, it won't seem so odd, if you were to take a popularity poll of the Spirit-given virtues in this list of the fruit of the Spirit, my guess is that gentleness would be lagging behind with its popularity, and frankly, its popularity is waning by the day. When I volunteered to preach this week, I didn't know which fruit we would be considering. I knew it would be toward the end of the list, but honestly wasn't surprised when I looked and saw that it was gentleness, because frankly, that's probably not the first fruit that anyone, especially Hallie, would think is a part of my everyday experience. In fact, she thinks anytime I speak a word of correction as gentle and quiet and still as it might be, that I'm being mean to her and talking mean to her. We need gentleness. And honestly, if you've read through all of Galatians through our time in this series or have any experience in it at all, you might wonder how Paul would get off in saying that he had gentleness the way he's spoken in the course of the letter. He's turned the rhetorical fire up a few times because the misunderstanding of the gospel message is a life and death proposition. If these Galatians don't get the gospel right, they are not going to be able to stand before God on the final day with any hope of being ushered into God's kingdom. And so he has to speak in the fiercest possible terms, but we also must remember that he is doing so from a posture of reminding them of all the horrors of his life prior to his conversion, which shows there is a love and humility that is the foundation for the truth that he is declaring to them sometimes, like at the beginning of chapter 5, in fairly harsh terms. So gentleness doesn't mean that you don't sometimes say the hard thing. Gentleness doesn't mean that you're waffling on the truth. But gentleness does mean that the words that you speak and the actions that we take are fit for the moment and for the good of the person 
with whom we are interacting and not for the exaltation of ourselves. So look at what Paul says, beginning in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. We're going to read these fruit again, uh, maybe for the first time in a, in a bit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Think back to chapter 2, verse 20, that we've been crucified with Christ, therefore we no longer live. But it's Jesus Christ who now lives in us. In the life we now live, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit. This is gentleness of spirit. This is that fruit there in the previous chapter. Watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. Carry one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone considers himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Let each person examine his own work. Then he can take pride in himself alone and not compare himself with someone else. For each person will have to carry his own load. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that while gentleness might not be the fruit of the spirit to which we are drawn first, We pray this morning that you would convict us of the ways that our lack of gentleness in speech and in action brings dishonor to your name. That you would convict us of how quickly we speak without thought that you would give us grace to know that your grace is sufficient for our failures in the past our failures in the future but your grace is also sufficient to transform to transform the way we speak to transform the way we think so that our care and concern most of all would be for others and in so doing in caring for others that our goal is to glorify your name Lord, I pray that your grace would be at work by your spirit this morning. 
In Jesus' name, amen. We live in a culture that is seizing and seething with anger. Yesterday, I took just a minute to just Google anger. Anger memes. We got a few here. Uh, the one in the top left there, since Matt had a little interaction with a bear the other day. I'm not mad, just very angry. Okay? Or the angry birds and the little thing you can't read says, it's not quite as fun as the game, is it? Or the one at the top there, I don't need anger management, just they need to stop hiring stupid people. You ever thought that? Or my favorite, the one of Yoda here, anger leads to hate, hate leads to rage, rage leads to telling everybody on Facebook about it. <laughs> we live in a culture of anger. This week, folks have exploded in anger over the president's executive order to cancel out ten dollars to $20,000 worth of student debt. And rather than folks having a debate over the policy itself, the talking heads on the left and the right have turned it into a culture war issue of what is moral, immoral, biblical, or unbiblical. A few weeks ago, the FBI executed an unprecedented, and if I never hear that word ever again, I'll be glad of it, an unprecedented raid on the home of the former president of the United States. And again, before anyone knows anything about anything, one side screams persecution, why not Hillary or why not Hunter, while other voices on the other side shout, lock him up, quite ironically, frankly. And just this week at a rally, the governor of Florida said to the cheers and glee of many about Dr. Anthony Fauci, someone needs to grab that little elf and chuck him across the Potomac. Now, Dr. Fauci has probably frustrated me as much as any of you. I had to teach for a whole year with a mask. But when this kind of rhetoric becomes acceptable, we're in trouble. The problem is that this type of rhetoric is not just present in the political realm, it's present in the church as well, where people are demeaned and devalued and called elves, and the image of God is attacked. In the church, we have disagreement over secondary theological matters that lead to disparagement of people's intellect, doubt about their belief in the truthfulness of the scriptures, disparagement of their appearance, their gender, or whatever else we can think of in the moment, and it results in the demeaning and devaluing of the image of God that is present in a brother or sister for whom Christ died. And in so doing can be cheered on by a crowd because so-and-so got what was coming to them. It is so frustrating and seemingly never ends, and the lure of it is so enticing that if not for keeping up with friends from the past, finding out what happened today in ancient history or University of Kentucky athletics, I think I might just sign off all of it. And as I was stewing on how these issues related to the fruit of gentleness the other day, I came across a tweet, surprisingly enough, from a friend of mine which said these words, and it was really helpful. It's always good to remember that the algorithm rewards anger. 
And it's not just on Twitter and Facebook and all the other social media. It's on Fox News, MSNBC, and all the other letter combinations you can think of because anger sells. Anger keeps you on the social media app. Anger keeps our eyes on the TV station. And the media we are consuming is shaping us and forming us in subtle ways that we never recognize until either it's too late or hopefully until we take a step back, seek out what God says in his word and ask the spirit to apply that truth so that we can be formed by the spirit's work and not by the work of the world. So as I stand up here to assist us in considering gentleness and what it looks like, let's see how this often, frankly, disparaged, even by people who claim to call Christ Lord and say, we don't need someone who's gentle, we need um, somebody that's going to stomp them under their boot. Let's see what Paul has to say about that. Well, the first thing we see in this passage is embracing freedom in Christ enables us to display gentleness to others. Embracing freedom in Christ enables us to display gentleness to others. So we see this actually a few verses earlier, back beginning in verse 13. Paul's been talking a lot about freedom in this chapter, but notice what he says in verse 13. For you were called to be free, brothers and sisters... Only, here's the key, don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. For the whole law is fulfilled in one statement, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out or you will be consumed by one another. I say then, walk by the Spirit and you will certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the spirit, and the spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other, so that you don't do what you want. So the first thing that we get here is freedom. <coughs> a theme that is powerful. It is a, freedom is a word that is powerful, and it, and it emboldens people to do all kinds of amazing things, but the foundation for gentleness is actually this freedom that is ours in Christ. Notice what he says there in verse 13. You are free, brothers and sisters, but don't use freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. So what we're going to look at here for a second is this comparison of fleshly freedom with freedom in Christ. Okay, so fleshly freedom with freedom in Christ. So what we're going to see here in this opportunity for the flesh is that fleshly freedom is focused on the self. The freedom that so many are desiring and so many are pursuing is very much driven toward me. As Randy Moss once famously said, I love me some me. And all of us are like that. We 
pursue self. We want our desires met when we want to when we want them met. We want them met now. We want them met fully and completely. We want and want and want. And our culture defines that as freedom. But freedom in Christ is focused on others. Notice what Paul says here. Serve one another through love. And then beyond that, fleshly freedom says identity is defined by desires. So think about how in our culture so many of these identities that are developed and are being lauded in our culture are related to the pursuit of wanton sexual desires, of wanton sexual uh, passions to be fulfilled in all kinds of ways that are contrary to what the scripture teaches and those become the identifying marker of a person and there is a claim that this is a pursuit Freedom. Freedom is pursuing my wanton desires at, well, at any cost and to the harm of anyone else who gets in the way. But freedom in Christ is found by an identity that is defined wholly and completely by King Jesus. That all other identifiers that we have in life are going, to, are going to fade away. They're going to fade into insignificance because our identity is grounded and founded in a king who never changes. A king who can be depended on. In fleshly freedom, others are consumed. Notice how Paul dis- dis- uh, warns them to be very careful about how they might be biting and devouring one another because now that Paul has set things right, you can understand how folks that might have been led astray are going to be angry at those who have led them astray and been deceived and there's going to be conflict. There was already conflict and how now that the truth has been settled and secured, how that conflict could arise again in all kinds of different fashions and ways because of the hurt feelings that come on the other side of of this theological error that has now been fixed. And Paul says, you've got to slow down. You've got to consider one another better than yourselves. You've got to love your neighbor as yourself. Instead of devouring one another, you need to build one another up in the truth. You see, freedom in Christ is enslavement to others that leads to the building up of your fellow image bearers rather than tearing them down. And you see, in the end, fleshly freedom is going to lead to enslavement. Enslaved by the powers, the gods of this age. There is in this fleshly freedom an offer of freedom that actually is slavery. And in this freedom that is ours in Christ, we are empowered with a paradoxical freedom that provides true flourishing by being enslaved to Christ and to our fellow believers. We know the freedom and the abundance of life that we need and we will receive the flourishing that we desire. That leads to our second reality that we have to face. 
Confronting our arrogance and envy enables us to cultivate gentleness in ourselves. We see this in verses 25 and 26. Look at what Paul says there. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So here's the process that's taking place. We are converted by the work of the Spirit. The Spirit calls us to faith. We repent and believe. And in that process, the Spirit changes our hearts so that we would love the things of God as the Spirit empowers us and continually is changing us by the grace of Jesus. But at the heart of who we are still, there is this longing, this desire for my selfish needs to be fulfilled. That's why the Spirit is controlling us and compelling us and frankly keeping us from doing the things, the sinful, selfish things that we want. And here in verse 25, Paul poses this condition. If we live... By the Spirit. Already back in chapter 3, Paul has made it very clear that they have been given new life by the work of the Spirit, but are they continuing to walk in and live in the power of the Spirit? In fact, he's trying to make it clear throughout the letter in both the instruction and how they think and how they live that living is only going to happen by the work of the Spirit, not by the work of the law. So the expected answer to this if in verse 25 is yes, yes, we live by the Spirit. But I think Paul was trying to get the Galatians and frankly us to ask ourselves if there is biting and devouring in our experience within the body of Christ. Is there biting and devouring one another that aligns with the practices of the flesh? Or are we walking truly in the Spirit, submitting ourselves to one another, loving as Christ loved us? Or maybe to boil it down, we could just simply say, do we practice what we preach? Now, I will say... Living by the Spirit might feel a little vague. How do we display the work of the Spirit that cultivates gentleness? Here's how. We walk faithfully with the Lord by daily keeping in step with how the Spirit applies the Scriptures to our lives and empowers us to put one foot in front of the other in just the right place, with just the right rhythm. And again, paradoxically, the freedom to flourish and grow is found in keeping in step with the Spirit. So we walk in alignment with the Spirit, we determine what this is by studying God's Word, allowing the Spirit to speak and apply the truth of that to our lives, and we will be protected from the oppression of the gods of this age that offer freedom but only enslave. 
And walking in alignment with the Spirit will protect us from the arrogance that causes envy that makes displaying gentleness just beyond our reach. You see, these are all intertwined. Arrogance, envy, and gentleness. Think about it this way. Suppose you're at work and someone gets a job or a promotion that you want. And objectively, you can look at your resumes and you can say, I have more qualifications, I have more experience, I'm a better fit for this job. But they gave it to some other idiot. That's frustrating. But at the heart of this is not an arrogance about ourselves necessarily because sometimes, you know, the, 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 the facts are the facts. But it does display more disturbingly an arrogance toward God. Because when we sit there and we say, why didn't I get this? Why was this done in this fashion? I have these qualifications and he has these and I didn't get the job, we're ultimately, if you really boil down to the bottom of it, saying, I know better than God what is best for me and my future. Now, it might feel unjust, and frankly, maybe it is unjust, but at the end of the day, this is the God-ordained plan that he has put before us to walk. It is something that he established before he created this world. And there is an arrogance in that that all of us are prone to from this spot right here to the back of this room. We are all prone to this, and that leads then to envy that will eat us alive. And when we are eaten with arrogance and envy, we cannot be gentle. In fact, I think it's helpful if we compare the vices and the fruit from just earlier in the chapter. So if we look here on the list, you'll notice that you've got sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery. And then we get into all of these where there's not exactly a one-to-one -one correspondence. But I do think it is interesting when we get to the end of the list, look at what corresponds to one another. Envy and gentleness. Now let's think about what we see on social media how much of the gotcha mentality or the I'm going to pound them into the ground idea is driven by an attitude of arrogance and oftentimes envy because what's the phrase you often hear? Don't punch down, always punch up. Because there is envy over what we don't have. And by attacking someone else, maybe I can obtain it. You see, the vices offer unrestrained freedom, but they deliver enslavement to the powers of the world. 
But the spirit-given fruit of gentleness is displayed through enslavement to others and delivers the freedom in which we can flourish. We all desire to flourish. We all desire to become the people whom God has made us to be. But our indulgence of the vices is not going to give us the flourishing we desire, even though it holds it out. The only way we're going to flourish is through the Spirit-given gift of gentleness. The spirit-given gift of gentleness that is displayed through enslavement to others and delivers the freedom in which we can flourish. Well, let's see that fruit of gentleness in action. In chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, Paul is going to focus in finally on displaying the fruit of gentleness. And when there is the displaying of the fruit of gentleness, it destroys arrogance and envy. As Paul explains the importance of bearing one another's burdens in 1 through 5, his focus here, I think, is quite significant. His focus in 1 through 5 on carrying one another's burdens is not so much on the rebuke of the sinful individual, but upon the behavior of the one who brings the restoration. Because here's the thing. Even though in our attempts to enter into the failure of others and bring repentance and healing in a situation, there is always waiting right around the corner a uh, temptation toward thinking more highly of ourselves than we should. Beginning to wonder, how did that idiot ever fall into that sin? I would never do that. You see, sin is always crouching at the door. So notice he says here in verse, the first part of verse 1, be concerned about your brothers and sisters in Christ. Notice he says they're brothers and sisters if someone is overtaken. Notice even how this is almost like they're, they're pounced upon by the sin. If someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit. You see, Paul alerts the readers to the importance of their bond that they have together, that there is a familial reality in the church, that they've all together been made joint heirs in Jesus Christ. They are brothers and sisters in the household of God. And the sin that's described here is quite literally stepping out of the line that you've been walking in when you're in step with the Spirit. And stepping over that line, it's like the marching band that gets out of step with one another. And so when we are confronted with this and we're commanded, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you are a spiritual, restore this one. We're really confronted with the fact, do I really actually care enough? When we tell it like it is, to the people we disagree with on social media. We tell it like it is to the people in our house or in our small group. Are we doing so for the good of others or to exalt ourselves and make ourselves look good because we haven't done something quite so stupid? You see, the focus of this verse is not on the one who's done the dumb thing. 
The focus of this verse is not on the one who's out of step with the Spirit. The focus of the verse is on the one who is to restore such a one. Restore this person into fellowship in the community. Not by mocking them in their failure, but by coming alongside and bearing the burden with them so that together this person can be restored and the glory of God can be revealed in this body. And burden bearing is difficult. Burden bearing is difficult because it ties us to other people who are going to disappoint us. But that's part of living in a family. It's part of living in a community where there is love. Those people that we know best are going to let us down the worst. And it happens over and over and over again. But we are to be long-suffering with them because the Lord, frankly, is long-suffering with us. Which leads to the second thing Paul says here, be cautious about your attitude toward your brothers and sisters. In Christ. You see, the problem that so often arises is that when we help someone who's fallen into sin, we become prideful, and pride comes before a fall. Again, this week, surprisingly on Twitter, I found something helpful. This is a quote from my doctoral supervisor, Tom Schreiner. And I think it really hits home about how significant our attitude of gentleness really is. He says, It's hard for people to hear the truth that Jesus is the only way if we speak with an arrogance that suggests we are the only way. We must be firm. Notice here what he says. We must be firm in contending for the truth, but Paul commands us to be gentle and patient and to proclaim the truth with gentleness to those who disbelieve. Gentleness does not mean that we are wimpy. There is a gentle firmness, a gentle sternness, but we must beware of anger, for it so often stems from the flesh. You see, the danger here in this attitude of of arrogance that can develop is that we are the solution to someone's problem when in reality Christ alone is the solution to the problem. Christ alone can bring the healing and the help that is needed. So we suffer long because Christ can do a great work in his time. Which may be far longer than we would ever like. Which leads to the final thing that Paul says. Be careful in the end how you view yourself. Notice what he says in verse 3. For if anyone considers himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. In verse 3, Paul is chastising those believers in the church who think that they are too good or too important to bear the burdens of others in the congregation. And this attitude stands in direct opposition to the pattern of Jesus' life. Remember how Paul describes him in Philippians as the one who emptied himself utterly and completely, taking the form of a servant and being found in the likeness of a human being. He gave of himself completely to bear the burden of our sin and the punishment for our sin on the cross. 
And where do we find Jesus in the midst of his earthly ministry? He is hanging around death and sickness and sin. And he's bringing people from death to life. He's mocked for being with the tax collectors and sinners. But he's welcomed these tax collectors and sinners into his kingdom on the basis of repentance and faith. These people thought to be beyond the reach of God's grace in the gentle firmness of the message of the gospel about Jesus. Their lives are transformed. They are broad, surprisingly. No one would have ever thought it. Brought into the kingdom of our Christ. So this morning, as we conclude, we need to examine our actions and not just our actions, our motives. As we pursue these burden-bearing relationships, are we pursuing them because we want to be able to pat ourselves on the back and tell us how great we are at helping these people whose lives are in a mess? We're correcting the person we've never met in person across the waves of the internet. Are our motivations for their good? Or really, if we're honest, so that I can feel good about me? And if we find an answer we probably don't want to find, the Spirit makes that clear. My prayer for all of us this morning is that we would repent and cast ourselves on the grace that we received in salvation. Because the grace that we received in salvation to make us a member of this family, this people of God, is the grace that will sustain us and lead us to the place of flourishing on the other side of our selfishness. On the other side of our arrogance. On the other side of our envy. Because he is faithful to complete the work that he has begun. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that you would be at work in us through us. Lord, if there's a person here this morning that has been pursuing a freedom that is apart from you, if there's a person here that's been pursuing freedom in ways that don't align with walking in the Spirit, Lord, I pray that you would help them to see that while these things that they have been pursuing or offering to them flourishing are offering to them all that the world can give, that you would give them eyes to see that they're just being brought into a place of enslavement. and that your spirit would make it clear that the only way to freedom is running to Christ. Finding forgiveness and salvation in him 
and by walking in step with the spirit that he gives, learning what it is to be free in submission to the king. And Lord, for those of us who who have placed our faith in you, who have been walking for a short time or, or a long time, walking in in step with the Spirit, hopefully, Lord, I pray that you would help us to, to carefully consider this morning if our steps have if gotten out of rhythm or off the path, that if the words that we have spoken, words of correction, words of even truth, have been spoken with the right motive and with the right humility, with the right gentleness, so that you would be glorified and we wouldn't be about the work of glorifying ourselves. And Lord, when you make that apparent to us, Lord, I pray that we would be ready, willing, and quickly able to repent and be realigned and in step with the work of your Spirit in us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, let's stand. We respond by remembering what Christ has